I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Matt Bernico. And I'm Dean Detloff. This week on the show, we're talking about love. This week, we're joined by Richard Gilmopolsky, who wrote a very cool book called The Communism of Love, An Inquiry into the Poverty of Exchange Value. It's a very interesting book. In the last few weeks, we've talked a lot about class and political economy, but this week we're kind of, uh, we're, we're tackling socialism and communism and revolutionary politics from a different angle. Rather than talking about it in the uh, the big mechanical terms, we're talking about uh, human relationships. And I think it's a pretty interesting way to talk about communism um, and uh, just thinking about love and politics in general. You'll hear more about the book in a minute. But before we get that far, let me say you can uh, get Richard's book, The Communism of Love, on akpress.org. And you should do that. Uh, all right, Dean, what, what else do we have to say here? Um, let's see. You've said it all. It's a great book. It's about love. Some good philosophy in here um, for all those philosophy heads out there. I'll say, too, it's very fun to listen to in particular because uh, Richard talks about all kinds of different ways that love shows up that we don't talk about. Um, but one of the ways it shows up in this podcast is by a really sweet moment where Matt and Richard uh, share <laughs> their um, gratitude for one another in that educational relationship. So uh, it's a great podcast because it also illustrates the very theme we're talking about. Uh, with all that, it's said, true, folks. Uh, start a podcast. Get your uh, your most beloved mentor to come on and say nice things about you, so you have it in <laughs> uh, in the cold hard recording. That's that's an important life lesson for you. <laughs> it is. You can listen to that whenever you're feeling down on yourself. Uh, <laughs> let's go on over to Richard. Today, joining us on the show is Richard Gilmanopolsky. Richard is a professor of political science at the University of Illinois in Springfield and the author of a very cool new book called The Communism of Love. Richard, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. Well, in the past, we've referenced your work a lot. Uh, I think we've uh, we've talked a lot about your book on revolt. Um, so it's great to actually have you here and talk about it all firsthand. Though before we do, do you want to just introduce yourself and tell us what you're all about? Sure. Um, so I teach a political theory and philosophy at the University of Illinois. So I'm one of the things that I am as a professor. Um, I'm an author. Um, I enjoy writing and research. I am, whenever possible, also an activist situated such as I am, wherever and whenever that is possible. Um, and I focus in all, on radical theory, uh, predominantly working within the autonomous Marxist milieu 
And that might come up as we go through the other questions, if your listeners are interested in exactly what that means. Yeah, I think they will be for sure. Um, you know, whenever we uh, talk with someone about a book that they've written, we always ask them to give something of an elevator pitch for their work. And you've done such a lot of uh, really productive work over the years. Like Matt said, we refer to Specters of Revolt, I think, uh, every uh, every six months or something on this show. So we're excited about your new book, uh, <laughs> The Communism of Love, An Inquiry into the Poverty of Exchange Value. Can you maybe tell us a bit about what that book is? What are you trying to accomplish with it? What's going on in that text? Well, it's a, it is a it is a big question, as you know, um, and I'm not sure how easy it is to summarize. This book was for me um, a totally exhausting project. Um, at this point, at least, I consider it to be the major work of my life, um, partially because I can't imagine what could what could come next. But the book is uh, really um, about uh, is is really an effort to to think through and develop uh, what I found to be the best theories of love in in the history of political philosophy. So a a, a different way to put that would be to say that if you look at um, the way that uh, critical theorists um, who were thinking about social relations, who were thinking about revolution, who were thinking about um, the, 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 the radical transformation of the world as we know it, a uh, precious few of them have thought also about love, but we did see this uh, in the middle of the 20th century in the work of Eric Fromm. Um, and I found uh, a couple of things there. One was that Fromm was onto something. Um, two, that um, he made many major mistakes, um, but they haven't been taken up since and developed beyond uh, beyond the point that he arrived at. So. One way to explain the communism of love is that it is an effort to um, to bring uh, critical theory uh, uh, up to date on the theory of love, to sort of develop from beyond from, um, to deal with contemporary issues in politics and social life um, that uh, go well beyond what was avail- available to Eric Fromm in the 1950s. And so what you get is a kind of interdisciplinary uh, study that takes a long view at the history of philosophies of love and tries to um, to think about love in a particularly as a particularly political and social power, thinking about love not just at the level of uh, the private relations of a household, thinking about love not just as the le- at the level of um, sexual relations, which is often what love is reduced to. It's reduced to the romantic context of sexual relationality, but rather thinking about love as a political power at a social level. Uh, that's a really great explanation of the book. You did a good job on an extremely hard task. Love is such an interesting thing because it's so, I mean, so commonplace. It's an everyday part of, I think, a lot of people's lives. You know, we say we love you and we hang up the phone with a parent or uh, when we're going out the door, we say it to our spouse or something or a partner. Um, but I think it's really interesting in the way that you complicate the, um, I don't know, the, the idea of love and maybe not complicate you, 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 uh, draw out uh, what it actually means and, and all of the things that go with it. And, uh, I think you complicate the way that, uh, we think about it, I guess, maybe as a society or something, it's a big question, but, uh, you're probably the only person up for the challenge having written a book about it. Uh, but what's love and why, why invest a, a whole book in writing about it? Well, it is a big question, but it is also at the same time, 
the central question of this project. So I'm very happy to be asked it. I would say that love is, uh, is, is in a very broad sense, best understood in two registers. So first of all, we should understand love as uh, an actual material practice, a practice between people, real people in the real world. So that is to say, love not at the level of a concept, but love at the level of a practice. Okay, so love uh, in that register refers to the ways that people uh, relate, but not all of the ways that people relate, because a lot of the ways that people relate in a society like the ones that we live in around the world that are governed by the logic of capital, capitalist societies, func they are organized often on a different set of values, on a different set of relations namely what we call exchange relations and exchange values. So love is a different practice of human relationality that real people in the real world experience. That's one register. The second register within which I think we can define love is that uh, it's a human aspiration. Okay? Um, it, it is a human aspiration that I approach as, if not a universal, human aspiration, uh, I, 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 pro I approach uh, the aspiration to love as at least a near universal aspiration. So different people around the world, they mean different things when they say love. They mean different things when they think love, but everyone you meet um, aspires to love, even if they misunderstand what it means. That is to say, it's a human aspiration even where it is not well understood. So now, um, Having said that, um, you know, for me, um, love is a human aspiration for a different set of human relations. And uh, if we really think about what type of human relations are organized by the logic of love, it seems to me that um, there's a there's a communist aspiration inside of the near universal uh, aspiration to love. So that's what uh, that's how I'm combining a little bit the the concept of love and the practice of love with the communism of love. If I were to give a very short answer to the question, define love, it would be this. Love is a practice whereby we we participate in the other other people's becoming what they are not yet. So it's a short sentence, but it is a complex sentence, right? It's a single sentence definition of love that is deceptively simple. Let me say it again. Love is a practice whereby we participate in the other's becoming what they are not yet, okay? So we don't know what other people will become, but if we love them, as you may love a son or a daughter or a friend or a partner, a lover, a mother, a brother, if you really love another person, in practice, what that looks like is you're trying to participate in their becoming what they are not yet, but what they could be or what they should be, not according to your own point of view, not according to some predetermined teleological view that says my son or my daughter is going to be a surgeon, my son or my daughter is going to be a doctor. But, but you participate in their becoming something you don't know exactly what that becoming entails but love is the practice in, of participating in it. It's so interesting to hear you say all that, Richard. And thanks, by the way, too, for uh, finding such a nice and neat way of uh, summarizing what you say in the book. Uh, you know, 
because we talk so much about Christianity on this podcast, there's so many just fascinating like overlaps and um, different ways that your vocabulary just naturally connects with all kinds of things that we think about um, on the show, but also in just kind of, I don't know, the daily life of trying to be a, a Christian person situated in that tradition with all its uh, faults, but all its uh, interesting observations too. And, you know, your book draws on such this wide array of thinkers. In the first chapter, you draw on uh, Simone Weil, someone who's known for uh, her mysticism and religious thought. And it's so interesting how religious themes and ideas work their way into your book about love and communism, which, of course, is really interesting for us uniquely. At one point, you say the history of philosophy, thinking about God and love swirls together. So could you say a little bit more about the role that religious and mystic thinkers like they or those kinds of themes play in your book and how you think about communism or approach those uh, relations between communism and love? Yes, and I really appreciate this question. It's part of the reason I was really looking forward to being a guest on the Magnificast, because I don't know that it would be picked up by others who would interview or ask about the book. Um, So the first thing is, the first thing is that uh, it's true. Um, There's a certain courage uh, that it takes to speak about uh, love. And it seems to me, when one looks at the history of philosophy, that um, the people who, uh, to, to, to step up and take the risk, take the daring, with some courage, with some fear, with some trembling, uh, and much trepidation, are people who also have the confidence to speak of God. So the obvious starting point of this discourse in the Western tradition, you could say, is the is Plato's Symposium. Uh, I have a section, a chapter in my book that is focused on an analysis of Plato's Symposium. But Plato's Symposium, part of my chapter, is called Too Many Aphrodites, because there uh, is a, in the Symposium of Plato, is a, a number of speeches that people joining together to talk about love give in praise of love, in praise of the God of love. And after that, um, you have a different tradition in the history of philosophy of talking about love that is connected with theology in the sense that Love is often regarded by social scientists, political scientists, and others in the humanities as an ineffable, invisible um, power. Okay, so in other words, when people think love, they often think of something that they cannot speak about. There's a certain uh, mystical or ineffable quality to love. It's something that you want, that you know is real, that you aspire to, and yet it it's not something that you can knock on like a piece of wood, like a desk in front of you or, or a rock outside. So, so, and you also have some philosophers who have, have said, don't talk of love. It is not political. It is not of this world. So people like Hannah Arendt uh, were very upset when she, uh, when she found, for example, James Baldwin talking about black radical politics in America and combining that with the discourse on love, she wrote him a letter and she said, stop, don't talk about love. Love shouldn't be connected to politics. You'll make it earthly and it's not earthly. Love is the least political of all concepts. It's even, according to Hannah Arendt in The Human Condition, it's even anti-political. So what I'm saying is that, uh, is that, uh, 
is that uh, in the history of philosophy, people like mystics like Simone Weil and also other um, theological figures, the first chapter also deals with Emmanuel Levinas. And there, there, there seems to be a, a, a similarity in the comportment that one takes when they speak of God. Um, they, they are more likely to also then speak of love. For me, speaking about love was not a theological project in any way. I was following a little bit more, a different courage, you could say. And I will confess that writing a book about love terrified me. But when I, when I saw Franco Berardi's book from 2009, one of the most beautiful books he's written called The Soul at Work, Berardi there says, look, uh, we have abandoned the whole discourse on the soul because we think that it is the private property of theology and poetry. But we should not abandon the whole discourse on the soul. We should try to think and speak about the soul in a materialist way. And uh, that is what I'm trying to do with love. I'm trying to think about love in terms of, as I said before, its materiality as a real experience in the real lives of real people. There is still, though, a, um, a another uh, dimension that brings love, discourses on love together with discourses on God. And I find that, for example, in some of the great philosophy of Enrique Dussel, he, uh, he, he understood that people who think of God often also think about totally different worlds that people who think of God and people who think theologically or think about um, religion, they are more accustomed or more open, you could say, to thinking about an entirely different uh, form of life, an entirely different uh, life world, you know, whether they're thinking about celestial or metaphysical possibilities of a life after death, um, or even thinking about um, just uh, the the dictates of a certain set of commitments um, practiced here in the world. So, in my view, um, following a little bit Enrique Dussel, um, there is a there is a certain a critical uh, you could say I say a certain critical um, uh, kindred uh, approach in thinking about God and thinking about love. Both uh, approaches are, 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 are willing to think about something that is considered too vaporous, invisible, ineffable, even mystical, okay? Something that somehow as Arendt believed was not earthly. But, there, but also, especially when we combine love with the question of communism, you have to be willing to think about a different possibility, a different reality. You have to be, able, be willing to think uh, not only about the ineffable, but also about the possible and the desirable. And as a communist, you see, uh, this is a very important um, this is a very important commitment in my work. I think the comparison uh, between what you're doing with love and what Berardi does with the soul is actually a really helpful one. Um, something that your book does really well and, and really convincingly is um, bring uh, bring the idea of love as you define it to bear on political economy, on capitalism, and on alienation. When you do that, you use a really particular word, which I think would be really helpful to, to hear you talk about a little bit. And that word is Gemeinwesen, a really good Marxist German word, um, which means you know an ideal community or a community such as it is. 
uh, a complicated German word, uh, to say the least. Um, you have some pretty powerful things to say about the ways that uh, com the community of capitalism uh, has disfigured humanity in some pretty just grotesque ways, especially with regard to the homeless, which is a really interesting sticking point in your book for me. Um, but would you mind just walking us through that a little bit? Uh, talk about Gemeinwesen and the ways that you've brought love to bear on that idea. Yes, well, um, as, a, as a student of Marx, uh, it has always struck me from the earliest writings of Marx in the manuscripts of 1844, um, all the way up until the very end of his life. For example, you could find important statements to, to this effect in the critique of the Gotha program, and perhaps most centrally in Grundrisse. It has always seemed to me that Marx was centrally concerned with human relations, with human relationality, and with forms of human life, and how they are one way or another way, um, given the imperatives of political economy, given the conditions of life, the material conditions of life. So, for example, in, in, in the manuscripts of 1844, the first three chapters, the profit of capital, the wages of labor, the rent of land, he, Marx, a young Marx, you know, in his, in his late 20s, lays out the, um, the basics of his political economy. But then it's the fourth chapter where he explains why all of this political economy matters. He writes a chapter at 26 years old about estrangement and alienation. And he talks about how capitalist uh, political economy, and you know, in those first three chapters, lays, lays the major building blocks of that before us, um, lead to a alienation of human beings from their work and estrangement of human beings from the products of their labor and estrangement of human beings from other human beings and ultimately an estrangement of human beings from themselves and their species being, which um, is really a chapter in the early Marx about capitalist dehumanization. Uh, alienation, privatization, the separation of the human being from what it means to be a human being and from other human beings in the society. And it's and that uh, interest that Marx had in the human community and the way that it relate, the way the human beings relate to each other in one form of society or another never went away. And it was most centrally um, taken up um, in Grundrisse. And the word Gemeinwesen, which um, as you rightly say, is a is left in the German because of its uh, multifarious meanings, sometimes referring to the ideal um, possible human community, sometimes referring to a community that was like the primitive, the primitive communism of certain places and times, and sometimes referring to the community such as it is now. But in any case, the Gemeinwesen means the common essence or the, the way that we relate to other human beings. And Marx um, is, is, is giving his entire life over to the question, what is capital? What does it do? How does it work? And the overarching interest that Marx has is in how it disfigures, deforms, and undermines the healthy human mind Wiesen, the way that it breaks apart the way that we relate to each other. So early on, this was about alienation, but in Grundrisse, he says that the, the, human, the, the human being carries his social bond around in his, in, 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 in his wallet. 
so that money becomes what replaces trust. So if, if you come to me and you say, can I borrow your car, Richard? I'll say, uh, yes, but um, in, the, in the place of trust, because obviously I can't trust you, um, leave me a collateral, leave me a deposit. So in, in the place of a social bond, you will give me collateral, you'll leave a deposit, like you're renting an apartment. And you can get back your deposit, you can reclaim the collateral when you return my car. And what Marx sees is that throughout capitalist societies, there's a wholesale replacement of human relationality that is based on trust and other relations than exchange relations. Um, it's a wholesale replacement of, of healthy forms of human relationality with forms of human, human relationality that are competitive, self-interested, alienating, and ultimately fatal. So in Grundrisse, at the very end, for example, he says a very powerful point when he makes at the end of the Grundrisse, Marx says, exchange was completely alien inside of the community. It only happened at the boundary where one community met an outside community. And it's true. If you look at your love relations, if you look at your relationship with a friend or a son or a daughter or a partner, um, you don't say to that person, yeah, no, I'm here for you. It's a terrible pandemic. You've lost your job. But just listen, if you give me $15 an hour, I'll give you an hour of my attention on the phone. You don't say to a child who is hungry inside of a healthy community, oh, you want water? You want some food? Well, I'll give it to you in exchange for labor. Exchange logic and exchange relations have no business there. And the second in a love relation, people start to do an accounting where they say, I have given this much to the relationship, you have given that much and it's unfair. And the second that you start to quantify and measure uh, the exchange value of what you bring into a relationship is the second that it starts to get disfigured the second that it starts to be corrupted by the fatal logic of capital. So the Gemeinwesen is really, for me, uh, what Marx was always interested in from the very beginning. And when Marx thought communism, this is what he thought about. So if you look in the critique of the Gotha program, you know, Marx says uh, the famous line that on the horizon, the distant horizon, horizon of a new society finally will be written from each according to their ability to each according to their needs. And that is already, that communism, that communist idea is already in the healthy Gemeinwesen that we seek. That is to say, if I love my sons and I love my friends and I love my students or colleagues or comrades, I want from them what they are capable of. I ask or expect from them only what is can be can can be expected from them in line with their proclivities, their desires. And they also ought to have everything they need, not in exchange for work, not in exchange for money. And if that is communism, then we find it in the love relation. I think that is so, I mean, first of all, that's such a powerful way of putting it, Richard. Um, and I, I can hear the pathos in your voice that also is present in your writing, which is really nice to be able to hear in this particular medium. 
Um, I think that theme is probably what I found most compelling about your book. And also, I guess what I've always found most compelling about Marxism, you know, for um, I think especially for Christians, like it's kind of hard to convince Christians that uh, political economy is very important because it's like really hard to understand. <laughs> um, but it's not hard to convince Christians and, and other people, of course, that, uh, you know, your relationships are disfigured by capitalism, because I think we do have this kind of ineradicable or um, trace or whatever of, of that kind of experience all the time, whether we admit it or not. And that comes out so much in, in your work, generally, it seems to me. And maybe this is a good time to ask you a bit more about that particular Marxist tradition, the autonomous tradition you mentioned at the top of the episode here. You know, you write about things like revolt, anarchism, communism, etc. Um, when you talk about communism in this book, you're talking about these these relationships uh, rather than starting from the premise of, you know, trying to figure out the nuts and bolts of political economy in the way that, I don't know, another popular writer like David Harvey or something might be, you know, skilled at doing. So can you say a little bit about that? Like, rather than a particular arrangement of production or, or ownership or, or, or a lack of those things, how do you think about and define communism with this sort of uh, Gemeinwesen uh, ethos that you're bringing to us here? Well, this is a wonderful question again, and I think that um, the first thing I would say is that uh, the problem is not um, understanding Marx's political economy. Not un The problem is not trying to understand who owns the means of production. Uh, we have to understand production. We have to understand surplus labor. We have to understand how expropriation, extraction, of value works from labor um, in the production process. We have to understand the entire entirety of, of, of political economy. Um, I think we should try to do as, as good as, as the best that we can along that path. However, there has been a problem among some Marxist thinkers to reduce the idea of communism to this part of the project. That is to say, um, I think that uh, writers like David Harvey are wonderful, and the clarity that Harvey is able to bring to the political economy of Marx's project is extremely valuable. The problem for me is that we have to understand that communism for Marx was not uh, reducible to an economic uh, a theory. It was not simply political economy. A couple of things are worth pointing out. The first is that uh, Marx was trained in philosophy. Um, his, PhD dissertation, his PhD dissertation was a philosophy dissertation. He was widely interdisciplinary. He was interested in the, uh, the natural sciences. He was interested in Darwin. He was interested in social relations like a sociologist. It's no uh, coincidence that introductions to sociological theory begin with Marx, Weber, and Durkheim. So there's a whole um, range of, of, uh, of, of sociological, economic, political, and I would even say psychosocial um, content in Marx's voluminous body of work. And what I resist is any effort to uh, reduce Marx's project or reduce the idea of communism to some narrowly defined economistic thought. 
It is absolutely wrong, but there's a long tradition in it. If you go and get the uh, Penguin Classics edition, the portable marks that was very lovingly edited by Eugene Kamenka, you'll see that it's broken up into political writings and economic writings. Well, this is absolutely absurd because when Marx was thinking politics, he was thinking economics. When he was thinking economics, he was thinking politics. And of course, he was also thinking about uprisings and revolts. And when he was living in the UK, he was getting newspaper clippings from Engels and all of his comrades about the latest factory revolts. He was interested in uh, philosophy from below. He was interested in what impoverished, disaffected, and exploited people did when they rose up against their oppressors. And so there's a whole lot of what is called communism that simply moves beyond political economy. Having said that, it's true that we can say capitalism implies a certain economic arrangement. Um, any oppositional, any oppositional uh, uh, philosophy would have to imply a different economic arrangement. That's true. People like Richard Wolff, who is an economist, people like David Harvey, who is not, but also does a lot of similar work in political economy. They, they, you know, that's true. You would have a different, econ a different uh, set of commitments outside of capitalism. If we were communists, we would we would have a different way of arranging economic affairs. There's no question about it. So we wouldn't be in a society where there's a global pandemic and people can't go to work. And for that reason, one in six uh, families with children in the United States don't have any re any reliability that they'll have a meal each day. We wouldn't have people without health care because they're not exchanging their labor for capital, for, for, for a wage or something like that. So it's true. Still, though, we must resist the reduction of not only communism, but also capitalism to the economic sphere. Capitalism is not an economic system. It's a social system. It's an, it, it, it implies economic uh, policy and approach to economic relations. Capitalism gives rise to increasing uh, free marketization and privatization of everything. Marx understood this in the Communist Manifesto and wrote about it. But it's also a social system. That's what Marx meant by bourgeois society when he wrote that term frequently in 1848. So capitalism and communism can be understood as implicating political economy, but anytime they are reduced to political economy, we misunderstand both, you know, and that's one of the things that I like about critical theory. And I use a lot in this book of psychoanalytic theory and social psychology is because capitalism does other things to human people, human beings on earth that move beyond the, the sphere of the economy. And communism also, in as much as we agree with Marx that it means the real movement that to abolish the present state of things, well, that present state of things can be right now in the world with the global pandemic, isolation, loneliness, um, you know, um, exacerbated alienation and total insecurity. Those things have economic features to them, but to treat them as economic problems is to miss 
diagnose them, to mistreat them. Yeah, I think that's a really helpful um, correction to the ways that uh, people often think about communism and capitalism or socialism. I mean, anything really. Um, I, I think something else that strikes me about your book um, that I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about is the like the everyday lifeness of it all. I think that's really fascinating. L like capitalism is uh, a feature of our everyday life. And um, the ways that it sort of like makes us suffer and twists us into uh, accepting all kinds of indignities is a part of our everyday life in, in this capitalist world that we live in. Um, yeah, on the other hand, you you name some other things, some other features of everyday life, which um, uh, stand completely anathema to the idea of exchange and value and capitalism, and that's love. So um, given these, I mean, I don't know if these are, are two poles or something, but they're two different types of logics that could govern our lives. So, I, I mean, given those are those are the logics at hand, how do we liberate ourselves from a system that is uh, pervasive and everyday as capitalism towards something else that is maybe, uh, you know, that we all aspire to, like love, but uh, is still probably not uh, experienced with the same amount of frequency? This is really um, the, the biggest and the most difficult question of the entire inquiry. Um, is is the sort of how to part of it or the what is to be done side of the discussion. Well, the first little bit of hope that I would like to send out into the world through the contribution of this book is that uh, the alternative logic or the rival logics to the logics of capital is not uh, some uh, highfalutin, uh, theoretical, hypothetical, um, imaginary, but it's actually something that most people with a little bit of good fortune have a real experience with in their real lives. And, you know, uh, if we could see the communism of love, which is not easy to do for a lot of people, I think people who are inclined to pick up a book like this will not have much time seeing the communism of love. But there's also the rest of the world that aspires to love and denounce communism. But if they were to think about love and they were to think about what it does or means to them in, in, in their own lives, I think it wouldn't be too hard to see the communism of that aspiration in the sense that the most anti-communist person you'll meet um, still cherishes some relationship with someone that isn't uh, a money, a monetary relation, right? It isn't monetized. It isn't. Uh, it isn't contingent upon um, exchange relations. They may have someone, friend, a lover, a daughter, someone in their lives with whom they relate according to a different logic, and that relationship means more to them than all of the relationships they have with people at work who they would ruthlessly stab in the back at the first opportunity. So one sort of hopeful side of this is for people to see that there is a real point of contact that most of us have and, and desire deeply with a rival logic to the logic of capital. And then the question is, is how do you enlarge that? Uh, how do you how do you move that out from the experience of individuals into the world at the social level? And here's where in the book I reconnect with the themes of specters of revolt. And there's a chapter in the book called Unalienation, in which I return to the question of revolt. So let's put it this way. 
if you recall at the beginning, I defined love as participating in the others becoming what they are not yet. Well, who else participates in the others becoming what it is not yet? Anyone who sees the police brutality, the racial profiling, the rise and entrenchment and proliferation of white supremacy and stands up together in the streets in the, in, in the wake of the, 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 the murder of George Floyd. And they go out into the streets amongst all else that they say there in the streets in the context of the uprising, in the context of the revolt, is that they want to participate in the society's becoming what it is not now, but ought to be, you see. Uh, they, in participating in the revolt and participating in the uprising, are very directly saying, we want to be a part of this society becoming something it is not now, but could be and should be, you see. And so I think that um, if we were to uh, think about love a little bit more, and if we were to think about the communism of love, that we could see that um, social movements, revolts, insurrections, um, uprisings, global uprisings of various kinds in Hong Kong, in France, in Argentina, all the multiple locations where we track them, they are all in one way or another real efforts to collectively participate in this society becoming something it isn't. And let's not forget that it was in 18... Uh, 46, 1845 and 1846, that Marx defined communism as the real movement that abolishes the present state of things. So in a very literal kind of Marxian way, I think it's right to say that, um, that, uh, that the communism of love can be seen in social movements and revolts. Now, it is a fragile thing, so it's still not a great answer because we know that these uprisings happen and the world is often left much as it was before. But that's how love works. Uh, and that's, that's, how we, that's how we fight. And that's how we try. We, 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 we can, it doesn't need to be said that we must keep trying because we can be sure that people will. Right. In the face of material conditions that are unacceptable, people invariably find ways to rise up. And and so I think that it's difficult um, to say that some social movement like Black Lives Matter or Occupy Wall Street or the Arab Spring, uh, that these things are 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 are. Um, really changing the world through love. In some sense, it's a stretch. But in another sense, it's exactly what's going on. Uh, it's great that you bring up revolt. It's a good place to pivot to next. Um, so for listeners who might not know, uh, Richard was my master's supervisor when I was a student at the University of Illinois. And uh, man, it was a great time. Um, I think probably one of the most important educational experiences I ever had. Um, though I remember one time I was sitting in your office, Richard, and I was reading you something I've, I'd written about like, uh, Christianity and, uh, as a, as like a revolutionary force and love, um, though not in the same registers you're talking about now. 
And uh, to throw a wrench into what I was saying, you asked me a big question about how uh, hate might be a driving force as well, like the hatred of capitalism. And I don't know what I said. It doesn't matter. It was probably wasn't very good. But <laughs> now I want to put you on the spot and ask you the same question. You've written a lot about love and uh, and how important it is uh, as a as a force of communism. But what about hate? Um, I'm thinking back to you know this past summer, just like you mentioned a minute ago with the the Black Lives Matter protests and George Floyd protests and Brown Taylor protests and you know people in the streets um, burning down a police station and, and yelling "fuck the police." Um, I wonder how hate figures into some of what you've uh, thought about love. This is a wonderful question, and it is a question that is taken up in the book at some length at a number of different places. But um, the main the main chapter where I take it up is in chapter six. Um, well, first, let me just say on a personal level that I'm sure whatever you said in my office was was very was very <laughs> smart because um, in 21 years of teaching, you Matt were easily in the top 10. Uh, best students I've ever had, and and I remember you so so well, and and you were a standout from the start, and 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 I long started to think of you as a colleague and a comrade, uh, far before you graduated. Uh, having said all that, I must confess that I don't remember that conversation, but I can nonetheless answer the same question that I asked you to answer. Then, um, the first thing that I would say is that. It is wrong to um, to think of love and hate as opposites. Okay, um, uh, when I went into this research, I expected to find that um, I expected to find that love and hate would be theorized as opposite forces, and I was quite surprised that the people who seem to me to have thought the most and the best about the question of love did not see hate in, as, as the opposite of love, but they saw rather indifference as the opposite of love. So if we understand love as a practice of participating in the other's becoming, this presupposes some degree of care, some degree of affection, for other people. Um, this uh, presupposes that uh, some level of action, because love is nothing without action. It is, in fact, in action. It's not a private property. It's not something you have or don't have. People want love like they want a package delivered to their doorstep by Amazon. This is wrong, and it will not lead to any kind of real gratification because love is a practice and it requires action. So the real opposite of love isn't hate. It's apathy, indifference, inaction, passivity, acquiescence, and separation. Okay. So then what is the relationship of love to hate? Well, one of the one of the things that I did not exactly find in the existing literature on love, but I myself developed out of this project, was the idea that hate can be mobilized by love, which is to say that hate is not only not the opposite of love, but love can very well motivate hatreds. So I'm thinking about maybe what I asked you in my office many years ago about the hatred of capitalism. I can imagine that the hatred of capitalism could be mobilized by a love for other people. And you see what 
capitalism does. So it's the love for others that mobilizes a hatred of capitalism. So if you love people around you, not abstractly, but really, and you see their lives decimated because they are unemployed and insecure in a world governed by money where no one can work because of a pandemic or some other catastrophe, this can uh, mobilize a hatred in you. And now let's go to the police station burning to a cinder, which was in your example, Matt. Um, sometimes liberals and conservatives who, when it comes to black revolt, are pretty much on the same page. They ask when they see a burning police car or a police department, they ask, why do they hate their community, though? And it's precisely the wrong question. It's a love for their community and what they see happening in it that mobilizes a hatred of the police or a hatred of capital or a hatred of white supremacy in one form or another, a hatred of mass incarceration. So, you know, in the book, I talk about the great um, book by a recent book by a political philosopher, Tommy J. Curry, called The Man Not where he talks about young black boys, the same age as my middle school's aged son, uh, who walk around with a carceral consciousness. They understand the lopsided likelihood that they will one day find their bodies behind bars. Oh, my son does not walk around with a carceral consciousness. He's, he, is a, he, is a, he is a young man, a white, of a, in a white supremacist society, in a white family. He's the son of a university professor, um, a white male university professor in a white supremacist society. And he doesn't walk around with the carceral consciousness that Tommy J. Curry um, talks about. And so you can see how the love of a, of a black mother or a black father for a young black boy or daughter, black son or daughter, who is growing up in a world where the images about black people are so negative, white supremacist, virulently racist and violent, that their love for their child can mobilize a real hatred. Okay? And so I think actually love and hatred are connected um, it's sometimes as close friends, allies, you could say, uh, and some might even ask the question, what is love without hatred? Because there are certain situations in which um, in the absence of hatred would lead you to question the reality of love. That's so fascinating what you were saying, uh, Richard, especially about hatred, because I think Christians have such a hard time um, getting our heads around that because uh, we sort of. I don't know, our our love for love ends up stamping out a lot of hard questions about other things. And it makes me think about uh, this book called Fidel and Religion, where uh, Fidel talks with this Brazilian priest, Fray Beto, and, and Beto makes that same point to Fidel. You know, Christians are sort of turned off by the rhetoric of hatred that you sometimes see among Marxists. And Fidel has this brilliant re response where he says, uh, Marxism doesn't preach um, hatred. It, it simply provides an explanation for the hatred that, that is already engendered by living under a, a capitalist society. And it just seems like you have a really sophisticated way of trying to put this all together. Uh, and I really appreciate that sort of theoretical um, 
uh, way of, of putting this into a, a unity. Um, you know, we we often ask people, uh, what do you hope that they uh, might take away from your piece of writing or your book? Um, but I feel like you've done quite a lot of that already. So I want to throw you a bit of a, a curveball. Um, we used to have this kind of canned question that we would ask people at the end of the show. We haven't in a while, but it just suddenly strikes me as appropriate to ask you now. Um, you know, as a person on on the left, as a communist thinking about um, love and being drawn into conversation with themes in religion, uh, what do you think that the left can learn from theological traditions, Christian or, or otherwise? And what might you hope, you know, most of our listeners are, are Christians, what might you hope that they would uh, sort of get out of a, a left or revolutionary tradition? Well, that's a that's a really a, another wonderful question. And I like to get a, a, a question that is only asked by 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 you that would only be asked me by you and on this podcast it it's a wonderful question so the first thing i would say is that the left um certainly by now ought to have washed its hands of the kind of um uh anti-theism uh that uh, had infiltrated and in my mind to my mind, uh, derailed and diminished um, the communist idea um, in in the in practice in the world in various ways. Um, the reality is that um, you know Dussel, I think Enrique Dussel is right that people who um, are looking for hope and uh, possibility and thinking about um, uh, how to make a different world, uh, unlike this hell on earth, as it is experienced for so many people around the globe, um, may be drawn, as Dussel tapped into when he was working in the field of liberation theology, may, these people may be drawn both to religion and to communism and revolution. And I think that we have to appreciate and understand that we shouldn't make too much out of, especially if we are if we are good Marxists and materialists, we shouldn't make too much out of ideological separations like this. If we are able to make common cause across theological divides um, that separate spiritual and religious communities on the grounds of really wanting to change this world and change our lives on earth, that is the ground zero that unites us. And so I think that um, there's a lot to learn um, from that uh, trajectory. Um, and obviously, if it weren't for um, people who were willing to think of God, um, you would have a lot less uh, uh, people who have written and thought about and written about love. And the first uh, two chapters of my book could not have been written. Um, so I think, but now what, what can um, your listeners in the Christian community maybe sort of take out of um, Christians? I don't know if you would say the Christian community. There are many different Christian communities. But, um, but, but, but listeners to this podcast um, may already have thought about what they can take from a left-wing uh, philosophy. But if you go to the Greco-Christian concept of love as agape, you know, uh, agape in the Greco-Christian uh, tradition is juxtaposed to philia, you know, the same philia of philosophia, of philosophy. 
Agape is the highest love. It's the love of God. It's the love that many philosophers who wrote of God spoke about, philosophers not just like Vey or Levinas, but also people like Kierkegaard and others. Um, but philia seems from that point of view somewhat degraded because philia is the love of the brother and the sister. It's lower than the love of God. And I suppose what I want to do or, or one intervention that I would like to make among Christian readers and Christian listeners is the elevation of philia, you know, that we should not see the love of others here on earth juxtaposed to the love of God as a lower form of love. Um, it is a, a critical and it is the form of love that we need, perhaps most, but it's not a form of love that would preclude the love of God. And to make that move would be a grave error. So I think that there are uh, a lot of interesting um, dialectical and um, uh, mutual uh, sensibilities that come out of Christian thinking and that come out of communist uh, thinking. The one thing that I think really unites us um, in a world such as this one, is that we are not afraid of imagination. We are not afraid to imagine something that isn't. We are not afraid to imagine the not yet. We are not afraid to imagine the possible and the desirable. And while I am myself not a Christian, while I am myself not a religious person, um, I wish that we lived in a world where where people had a religious imagination, uh, which is to say a willingness to think beyond what is. If you can only think about what is, you've got a problem because look around, look at what is. You know, it's it's what is has got to be abolished. That is the first lesson of Marx. That is the first lesson of communism. And I think that this is a sensibility that we can build together. Richard, I think that's a good word. Um, I'm, I'm loving it. Um, thanks so much for joining us today for the conversation. You can get uh, Richard's book, The Communism of Love, An Inquiry into the Poverty of Exchange Value from AK Press. Um, and it's great. Go buy it. Thank you, everybody. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Dean. Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can pick up a copy of Richard's book at akpress.org, The Communism of Love. It's great. We also talked about the book The Specters of Revolt uh, from Repeater that you can pick up as well. Also a very, very good book. Our music is by Amoria Armstrong. Our outro is by The Illogical Spoon. Let's see, I've forgotten a few things already. Oh, you can support our own podcast if you want at patreon.com slash themagnificast. And uh, we do another podcast there about current events called The Lock-In. Um, we'll see you next week. I get up to church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up. Keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. 
Jackson, you keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late, oh don't mind, a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon, so come on now, it's still early.